Hello everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday service. Um, I know that as we continue to deal with the coronavirus that this is not the ideal situation as we continue with this um, sermon series, but at least we're able to still feed off the word and to understand what it is that God would have for us. So um, as with every week, I encourage you to open up your Bibles and if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to start with Verses 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So far in Isaiah, we have experienced a number of prophetic statements against the people. Prior to this, the historical element of Isaiah has been in the background. We have only thus far learned when he prophesied, as well as the death of one of the kings who reigned during his ministry. Now we come to historical events that occurred during the time of Isaiah. We learn the events which are about to take place and who the players are. In particular, we learn of Ahaz of Judah and his lineage, Rezin of Syria, and Pekah of Israel and his lineage. We know that Ahaz was king of Judah around 736 BC. We also know that Damascus, the capital of Syria, was under siege in 734 by the Assyrians. Thus, the event which is being described here likely fell in between that time frame. For some historical context, Syria was located north-northeast of Israel, and Israel was located north of Judah. Meanwhile, Assyria, not to be confused with Syria, was the world power at the time and was located northeast of Syria. At one point prior to what we encounter now, the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser III had started a campaign against Syria and Israel, likely to conquer Egypt and hence everyone in the way. Um, That campaign, though, was halted as the Assyrians needed to quell a problem to their north and to their east. As such, there is speculation that the reason why Syria and Israel made an alliance and uh, the attempt to attack on Judah was in order to have a joint defensive force against Assyria for when Assyria returned. The likely reason why was that they would be unable to mount the attack sooner likely reflects the previous Assyrian attacks on Israel and Syria, which had kind of in a way crippled them. Still, to come back to the present of the text, Ahaz, the house of David, is told that Syria and Ephraim had an alliance. Ephraim is another name for Israel. Similar to the house of David is another name for Judah. The reason for this is that many of the kings were Ephraimites. In fact, the first of the Israelite kings was from Ephraim. Ultimately, this new alliance unsettled Ahaz and the people. Not only would they have somewhat poor, powerful enemies to the north, but also the Philistines and others to deal with on their border. Thus, the fear of their enemies was quite real for the people. Now we come to verses 3 through 6. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, 
And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have devised evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. In the midst of this political climate, the Lord speaks to Isaiah. He tells Isaiah to meet Ahaz, the king of Judah, at the conduit of the upper pool. Prior to King Hezekiah, all the water for Jerusalem was above ground. It is likely then that Ahaz was going to the upper pool to take into consideration its defenses in light of the coming attack by Syria and Israel. Now it is interesting in the midst of this that Isaiah is commanded to take his son, Shir Jashub. The name of his son means a remnant will return. There is debate as to the purpose of this. Does the son mean to encourage Ahaz? That despite the enemy, a remnant shall remain? Or is it a sense of judgment, a destruction so great that only a remnant remains? Unfortunately, we're not entirely sure under the circumstances. Though because of the message already received, it seems likely the more negative forces in view, especially when we consider all that Isaiah has already been told to prophesy and all that he's witnessed concerning God. Still, the question is, what is Isaiah to tell Ahaz? The answer is one of calm and peace. He is not to fear the likes of Rezin or Pekka. They are nothing more than sticks left after a fire. They have all been but extinguished. Their glory as nations has fallen already. Whether it is because of the Assyrians' prior campaigns or because Assyria was already on its way to deal with them for good. Yet Ahaz is dealing with a personal crisis as well. They are not only seeking to cow him and his nation into submission. They are seeking to end the dynasty by annexing the entire nation of Judah. They are looking to set the son of Tabiel as king rather than Ahaz, which would then end the divinic line. Now we come to verses 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim shall be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Romelia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The concluding remark is poetic as compared to the prose before it. Some have thought the change in style to be strange, yet it often happens in Isaiah when a point is meant to be emphasized to switch from prose to poetry. Still, it is the prophecy against the nations and as a warning to Judah, as we will see. First, we find a reflection on what they are desiring to do. As it is, God already knows it will not succeed. Despite their intentions of forming this defensive force, and despite their intentions of forcing Ahaz to abdicate, in the end their plots are without any substance. It will not stand. It will not come to pass. We then learn that the head of Syria is Damascus, and that the head of Damascus is Rezin. That the head of Syria is Damascus simply refers to the city as the capital of the nation. As such, the question is, what is Rezin in the end? The whole nation of Syria rests on the shoulders of a man. What is there to fear? 
The next thought, however, takes a break from Syria and focuses on Ephraim, which is, again, Israel. Despite being part of the chosen people, the message is, is that within 65 years, the people will basically cease to exist. Some may wonder about this, since in 722, perhaps some 10 to 15 years after what we're dealing with here, Assyria does conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. That leaves us to wonder, where does the number 65 come from? Well, in order to understand this, we need to understand Assyria. When the Assyrians conquered a region, they would essentially displace those inhabitants. They would be sent somewhere else, which had been conquered, and new inhabitants would come in to take their place. It would not be until 670, 669, that the final deportations from Israel would occur. But even in the grand scheme of things, the point is, what does Ahaz have to fear from a people who will soon cease to exist? The word then returns to the previous point, which is that the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is um, the son of Romelia. Again, we find nothing to fear. And in this instance, and in the insistence of not naming Pekah, there might be a subtle question. Whose son are you, Ahaz? The answer is the son of David, with whom God made his covenant. The final verse of the prophetic word is an exclamation point. If Ahaz does not stand on faith, then whatever ground he tries to stand on will falter. The faith here is in the supreme ruler of all, the Lord God of all, the Lord of Israel. It is also a critique, though. They wrote in chiasms in Jewish literature, and a chiasm restates what was already said just in a slightly different way. Thus, the wicked shall not inherit the land, the wicked shall be destroyed. It's saying the same thing, um, but it's just saying it slightly differently for emphasis. This is a simple example of Hebrew literature using chiasms. In today's text, we see it too. The first line, their plan will not work, fits well with the final line, only in faith will you stand. Thus, in it all, Ahaz is being reminded that the nations are minor in comparison to God Almighty. Do not put your plans in yourself. Instead, trust in God for your deliverance. So, we now come to the main point. And the main point of these verses are to show Ahaz that there is nothing to fear when it comes to the alliance against him. In the end, both nations are the leftover wood of a died-out fire. Their plans will fail. Thus, Ahaz is encouraged to have faith despite the potential political crisis at his doorstep. In today's text, we see the purpose of God sending Isaiah to Ahaz. For in this moment, Ahaz is a man who is worried, he's scared, and full of fear over what may happen to him and to his nation. Usually, when we experience such situations, we are prone to make poor decisions. Decisions based not on what is right or good or warranted. Instead, we make decisions based upon our feelings in that moment. For God to send Isaiah to Ahaz in this moment is important to notice. Ahaz is in desperate need of something. Ahaz is looking at the coming wave of enemies as a scourge to crush all he knows. Everything is going to change before his eyes. But like most of us, the question is, what will the change bring? Will it bring the end, the utter destruction, or will it bring something good? 
As it is, he can't possibly see good coming from what he is witnessing before him. Oftentimes, we are in this place along with Ahaz. We live in a world where enemies come for us in many different ways, whether it is the devil and his minions, or our personal sin trying to uh, undo us, or even other humans in their depravity trying to harm us. All in all, the world can be, and very often is, a dark place which seeks to destroy us by enveloping us in its darkness. So how can we survive when the onslaught is so great? How can we be sustained in an ever-changing torrent of life? What can be done in order to keep us from descending deep into the abyss of this world and which it tries to force upon us? Because as it is, this world is capable of causing drastic changes in our perspective. It can come from any place in our lives, whether it is our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength. The distortions can affect any part of our humanity, and in affecting one piece of us, it often affects the rest of us. For example, it makes me think of children. Not that long ago, I know of a child who was very carefree. She was full of joy and outgoing. Then one time in kindergarten, something happened. On a winter's day, while playing during recess, her and her friends were ice skating. You're already knowing where this is going, right? On some ice. During their fun, though, the girl fell and she hit her head. Eventually, when school was over, her father picked her up and the teacher told him what had happened. Usually, his daughter was talkative during their walk to the car, but instead she was very quiet. She was quiet the whole time as she got buckled in, and the door closed. Quiet until her father got into the driver's seat and shut his door. And then as soon as his door shut, she began to cry, saying over and over and over again, I want my mommy. I tell this story because this little girl's perspective of the world was changed in that moment. She experienced pain and loneliness. She was hurt. And there was no one there to hold her in that moment. It was the first time she had experienced this bitter taste in her life. It had a profound impact on her for a long time. She became quieter in class. She didn't want to leave the home nearly as much. This is how things in the world can change our perspective. We can all experience moments of sadness, pain, hurt, and it can cause us to have a different perspective on the world. The person who has a physical ailment can have their perspective changed. The person with a broken heart. The person who encounters a differing thought. And even individuals who have had their humanity stripped from them. The very soul questioned. All of these things can happen to us. And in these things happening, it affects our perception of reality. We can see how this is the case. Consider some of the different thoughts which are currently being seen in our world today, especially in the educational systems and colleges. On one side of the campus, you have materialism, and this is the scientific side, for example. And materialism is the understanding that all that exists is matter, what is physical. Anything that is not matter or physical does not really exist, according to them. Things like being, soul, spirit, or free will They're all rejected. Instead, they believe all these things are merely brought about by our brain firing off neurons. Thus, we are only walking machines, predetermined by our genetic and biological makeup. 
Now, if you were to walk across campus, you'd come to another view, which is postmodernism. And this goes on the opposite side of the spectrum. If materialism focuses on the physical, then postmodern Postmodernism focuses only on the abstract. Nothing outside of us really exists. Or even if it does exist, then we would never be able to actually know that it exists. All we know is what we make up in our minds. Everything else is nothing more than a facade. We cannot know what is true apart from us. Finally, we can consider one more modern um, understanding, and that's modern-day feminism. Much of what we see is that women have been subjugated to second-class citizens by men. Ultimately, this leads to a skepticism that if men are fallible, then they cannot be trusted to convey an absolute truth. This then is put on the Bible because it was written by men. As such, they are skeptical of biblical teachings because of this. So even from these few thoughts, we can see how easily our ability to see things becomes less clear. Our perceptive um, natures become distorted because of the experiences we have in this life, personal experiences, as well as the experiences of engaging in thoughts and the ideas of others. In all truth, these things aren't the only things, for we can just as easily bring these things upon ourselves with our choices. All in all, it is the result of sin in the world which such things occur, for it is in a fallen world where darkness is all around. This darkness has an effect on us personally in all areas, causing even our noetic structures, our minds, um, our ability to reason to become futile. We end up not seeing the whole picture because of this. And in turn, it causes us to react to world events in ways that are less than ideal. Because as it is, our perspectives very often direct us in our actions. How we understand the world around us will very often lead us to make decisions that we do. Thus, if our perspectives are distorted, then we can be sure our lives will be as well. But thanks be to God that we can have our perspectives changed. We are not stuck in our life choices, nor are we stuck with the choices and ills outside of ourselves that cause us to stumble. No, we can have our perspectives changed, made new by the word of God. It is through God intervening on our own behalf that we are able to have our view and understanding changed. Ahaz is being shown the true perspective in this passage. He is surrounded by enemies. He is wondering what on earth can be done when so much darkness surrounds him. How can there be any hope? Then the word of the Lord comes through the prophet. And what does that word say? It says to him, do not fear. Why should he not fear? Because what is there to fear in men? Men who will be destined to be destroyed, whose nations will be expunged, whose people will be scattered. What is there to fear from men when compared to the mighty God and Lord of all? The king of Israel is merely the king of Israel. The king of Syria is merely the king of Syria. But God is the king of all. He alone is high and lifted up above all nations, all kingdoms, all rulers. Isaiah is telling Ahaz the reality of the situation is not nearly as fraught as he believes. Have faith in God. If it is true of Ahaz, then it is true of us. It is not as though God is no longer exalted. It is not as though 
something has come along and snatched God away from us. No, our God is still reigns. And as such, just as Ahaz should not fear mere mortals, so we should not fear anything in this world either. Nothing, absolutely nothing can compare with our great God and his glory. Thus, we are being called, just like Ahaz, to have our perspective changed by the word. To trust in the Lord when it comes to the realities of this world. To recognize him as Lord above all and to place our faith in him as our foundation for all things in this life. It allows us to consider the above examples I used. For materialism, it allows us to find the truth in it, which is that the material world does exist. It was created by God. We have a material body. But like the postmodernists, we also recognize that we have a mind. We have freedom of will. We are not merely machines like the materialist believes. Adam and Eve made choices which had an effect on the outside world. The same is true with us. The choices we make have an effect on the world around us as well. So both materialism gets a little bit right and postmodernism gets a little bit right. But it's in Christianity that it's all brought together. When it comes to the feminist discussion, it causes us to agree. There have been times in the past when women have been treated poorly by a society. However, we must also critique the idea that if men are fallible, then they cannot be trusted to convey an absolute truth. We could just as easily put women in there instead, or people. If women or people are fallible, then they cannot be trusted to convey an absolute truth. Thus, the system falls apart since no one is then capable of making an absolute truth claim if we take the skepticism and place it on everyone. Because as it is, women are just as fallible as men. And so when women make such a statement, the statement itself must be scrutinized under the same guidelines. And when this happens, the argument cannot hold. Likewise, when we consider the scriptures, the truth is we never focus on who wrote the scriptures. Instead, the focus is on whether or not what is said is truth. The scripture's claim is that they are prophetic words given to us by God. As such, if God is truthful, then it is reasonable to conclude that what he has given is true and that it accurately describes humanity, the world, and even God. Essentially, the scriptures change our perspective, taking us out of our own box and giving us an outside perspective, particularly from God's perspective. The manner in which this perspective comes, either at the pen of a man or a woman, is inconsequential if it comes ultimately from God, who is the source of that information. Not only that, but part of the perspective is remembering that despite the dark things that happen to us and the dark things found in the world, our God is still good. And this is reflecting back on the story of the child. It is often said that the greatest argument against God's existence is the problem of evil. Yet there is something to be said if God has shown us that he can take even that which is evil and turn it into good. In Christ, we find such a statement made. For though Christ was sinless, unworthy of any judgment, we find humanity judge him by nailing him to the cross. Yet it is in this act of darkness that light came. For though Christ tasted death and death sought to swallow him up, it did not realize that it would be defeated through him. 
As such, we have hope in this life knowing that despite our circumstances, our pains, our trials, our tribulations, we know that goodness can come from even these things. Our perspective is changed. Whereas once we might be bitter, a people without hope or peace, because of what God has accomplished, we have hope, we have peace, and so much more. So the question which is asked to Ahaz could be asked to us. What have we to fear? I am sure that there is nothing for us to fear, for Christ has come, and in his coming all the enemies are defeated. The word which was spoken has become flesh, and we who fall under his sovereignty and grace can now know the fruit of his great love for us. So what else can be said? other than to continue to place your faith in this great God who is high and lifted up. Place your faith in this God who shows the world as it is, the way it ought to be, and the way it can be, and the way that it will be. The one who takes all of our brokenness and heals us through his blood. He has given us what we need in order to not only get by in this world, but to thrive in his love. Place your faith and trust in him alone. For no other could ever compare with our great God and none could ever compete with his majesty. Do not cling to this world and the loves of this world. Instead, cling to love itself, our God, and know truth has come. Naturally, this leads us to the gospel. This leads us to all the wonderful things that we find from the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And it all begins with our origins. We were not merely made because of some cosmic machine. It's not a matter of time plus matter plus chance equals humanity. No. Instead it is we have been made in the image of God. That God is the first cause of all creation. He calls creation itself to begin. It is from him all life comes. All things in this universe have come into existence. And most of all, he created us to bear his image. And that is why humanity, all of us, have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. Every single human has this within them because they are all, all of us, we are all created in the image of God. And we can reason with God. And we can understand God. And we can love. And all the things that God does. Because we bear his image. However the problem happened. And that's the fall. Even in this text. We see some of the results of the fall. Where this potential carnage is about to happen on Judah. Where men plot in order to overthrow other men. Even though those men have done nothing to them. Why do these things happen in our world? Why does it happen that darkness comes? Futile thinking comes into the world. How is it that sin happens? It happens because we choose it. Because we make the conscious choice to follow after sin instead of God. Because we would rather hurt and hinder than obey. And we would rather be kings of our own world rather than submit to God. And because of this, we have broken relationships with God, with ourselves, with each other, with the world. 
And we try to come up with systems of thought that doesn't even come close to what the truth is. And instead it leads us to dehumanize one another, to take advantage of one another, to curse, to swear, to kill, to murder, all in the name of whatever makes us happy, whatever we think is right. How can this be changed? We are a people who have sinned against God Almighty. We deserve judgment. Well, thanks be to God. Because through the coming of Jesus Christ, his son, we are able to have judgment passed over us. And that is through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in time, space, history, and flesh, that we are made right. And his spirit comes upon us, and we are then able to understand God. And he makes himself further known to us, not only in general revelation, not only in this world, but specifically to each of us through the gospel message, through Jesus Christ. And it's not our work that makes us redeemed. It's the work of Jesus. And all it takes is us placing our faith in him. And if we should place our faith in him, then all manners of righteousness, all manner of justice and understanding come through Jesus. And we can finally learn to obey God. Not seeking to be the kings and the queens, but seeking to be the servants. And just like Christ humbled himself, we can humble ourselves before this God and serve him. But what comes from this? Is it just service? It sounds so much like servitude, doesn't it? But the truth is, is that the service that we give is love. And it's leading us not to become paupers in the kingdom, but to be kings and queens in the sovereignty of God. He he prepares a place for us with his Father in heaven. When all the things that we have dealt with in this life are gone and stripped away and we are finally face to face with our God who teaches us and shows us the truth of all reality. Not just some things. Not just Sunday mornings. But all reality. The same God who knows what's going to happen here to Ahaz. He's the same God who talks to us now through his word, through his spirit. And we can listen and we can obey and we can love because of what he has done. So as it is, we have our eternal hope in Christ. And this hope is not unfounded. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And we love because he loved us. So as we continue on through Isaiah, I hope that we would continue to understand the gospel. That we would look at what happens in history with these people and learn from them. That we would learn from their mistakes. We would learn from their successes. And that ultimately we would learn the truth. That God exists that he has spoken, and that he is the truth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have spoken through Isaiah. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to learn 
what it is that you would have us to learn about yourself and about us through your word. We ask, Lord, that we would not be swayed by these differing thoughts that we encounter every day of our lives, but instead that we would cling to the truth of the gospel, that we would understand this world in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would rejoice because through you we have true peace and love. And so, Lord, we ask that we would submit gladly to you, That we would all recognize that your ways are better than ours. And that ultimately, Lord, we have nothing to fear. Because love has come. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.